So this is an episode that's a little bit different from our other episodes, because I don't think to date we've interviewed a person who's currently running for office. We'd like to make sure that we are very clear about the following. So Sarah, would you please do the honors? Of course, especially since I'm the one in Colorado, it seems only fitting. We want to issue a very clear statement that we are not endorsing any candidates in this episode. We're super grateful that Trinidad Rodriguez, who's running for mayor of Denver, is willing to connect with us on this episode to give us an inside look at what it's like running for office. You know, we're really expanding on our civic engagement series with this. And again, we are not endorsing any candidates in this episode. Okay, so that was perfect. The lawyer and me really loved that whole statement. (laughs) So just A plus from that end. But, you know, this episode wasn't only unique because we were interviewing a current candidate. To me, it's also really unique in that we got an inside look into what a political campaign looks like, really along with marrying that personal why. So why we care about certain issues, for example, due to lived experience and, you know, combining that with our own individual and collective abilities to make change in the world. Yeah, totally agreed. You know, I think what I loved about this episode personally was sort of what you said, like it's humanizing and it humanized to me a process that I really only previously saw as, you know, someone running for office is on this pedestal and they're doing these superhuman things that us mere mortals cannot. And that's not true. Any one of us with enough experience, support, drive, internal strength and vision, like we can all run for office. The people doing this work for the rest of us are human beings who have made this commitment to make change. And so I think as you listen, I hope you find your own takeaway, not just about running for civic office, but about the power, regardless of whether you do that or not, that you actually do have to make change and shape your own communities on a daily basis. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your Japanese and white biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, I'm Trinidad Rodriguez, and I'm actually a candidate for mayor of Denver, one of 17 who are running for the office right now. A little bit about my background. I was uh, born and raised in West Denver which for those who don't know Denver very well is a neighborhood that's rich in love, but money was a little tight. And, you know, my mom and I experienced speed bumps along the way, but this city really helped us through the tough times. And so that's why when I started my career 25 years ago, I really got involved in giving to our community, supporting organizations actually that had supported me whether through my work in finance or actually did that consistently for the last 25 years in a few central areas, which happen to be areas where our city has a lot of need right now, like affordability and economic opportunity, homelessness and education, healthcare. I'm not done fighting for Denver and I've got a vision for our city that I'm working to share and to build a city where every Denverite, regardless of the neighborhood they're in, can achieve their version of success. Well, thank you for that. And I'm super excited to learn more because I'm not in Denver. I'm in the Bay Area. So what I know about Denver, I largely know from Sarah. I want to set this conversation in sort of the broader context of what we've been doing on the podcast recently, because we've been focused on an arc on the podcast to really bring people into this mysterious, and I'm using heavy air quotes here, world of civic engagement, right? Because you maybe took civics if you were lucky in middle or high school, maybe. And there's a lot of adults who are kind of like civics what? So we've looked at sort of civics 101 to break down 
terms, you know, from the federal level to the local level and really discuss the ways that everyday citizens can get involved at each of those levels. And so we really appreciate your time today because like you were saying in your introduction, you've been working for various branches and organizations within this government for many years now. And so I want to start with sort of a question that I'm sure you get asked a lot, right? What motivated you to run for public? public office at this point. And I want to preface, ask this sort of in two parts. But the first part is, what does it take emotionally to decide to do this? Because this seems like you're really putting yourself out there in a big, big way, um, which takes a lot of courage. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process there. Yeah, it's a really important question. And it's where everyone should frankly start, you know, their journey in terms of exploring their interests in civic participation, and civic engagement. And For me, it started with really seeing this city hit these challenges. While I do not diminish at all the strife and challenge that people experience as a result of these challenges, it just is very motivating to me to think about and work through how we turn adversity into opportunity. And that's a lot of what finance actually is, especially in capital markets activity. So it's just a kind of a problem-solving part of my mind. I saw our downtown Denver in the 80s actually fail completely. We had this explosion of commercial real estate development, and we had the fall-off and decline of uh, the oil and gas sector in Denver. And it made downtown Denver a ghost town with brand new you know, 50-story towers. And I remember being a kid running around those, those sort of empty streets. And you know, it was a good place if you were mischievous. But it wasn't, you know, the place most people would want to hang out. So I actually reflected on that experience quite a bit, especially in the midst of the pandemic, when we saw our urban centers, our urban cores kind of clear out with work from home. So one of the first things I did in my civic life was I volunteered for an organization. We have a 700 member business organization, 700 businesses called the Downtown Denver Partnership. And I got on the board there and ended up chairing it in 2019, 2020, when our downtowns were fundamentally changing. That experience sort of came back again and and really motivated me to think about what I could do for our downtown, especially as somebody who's been on the challenging side of these, you know, these dynamics, whether it's mental health struggles or, you know, violence or, or whatever else. And really be the kind of person who can talk about designing systems that take those human elements into account a little more. And, uh, but in terms of like how you go about really thinking about this and deciding whether to do it, for me at least, it was you start with your friends and your family and you kind of ask them, like, be honest. Do I have the right kind of personality? Do I have some skills? What do you think? How do you think I'll play? But also asking them about, you know, what kinds of things you'll need. They know you from your tough times. And so they'll shoot straight about like, okay, you need to have this in place and that in place to make sure you, you know, you weather the stress and everything else that you go through and then make it a productive experience at the end. And so I did that with my family and ended up getting a, and my closest friends and ended up getting a thumbs up. The other thing is you'll need them. (laughs) You will absolutely need them uh, along the way. And so you want them to know that, you know, you heard them and and were taking their advice to heart when you come and and get help. So I appreciate you sharing that importance of not only memories, which bring you to a certain point, but also that support network that you really need 
not only at the start of your potential run, right, but throughout it and post-run, I would imagine as well, regardless of outcome. That sort of dovetails nicely to my next question, which is, I think people get to a certain point where maybe they've done this sort of discussion with their friends and family, you know, do I have what it takes? But then if they, everyone gets to yes, then they're suddenly like, well, I have no idea practically how to make this happen. Like, how do I get my name on the ballot? So can you tell us a little bit more about the endorsements that you need, the paperwork, you know, the money, all of those factors I know go into running for office, but I think a lot of us are not very clear as to when they come in and how. In Denver, it's pretty easy to get on the mayoral ballot, actually. You need 300 signatures and you need to set up like a campaign committee, which is pretty easy. I would say that, you know, more than anything, it's really about how you're going to position yourself for the duration because it's a many month proposition. And so starting out with a vision that's informed by experts, not necessarily you have to do everything exactly they say, but just, you know, having a sense of reality about what's involved in charting the path and you know, kind of understanding the big three sort of ingredients in the successful campaign, money, messaging, and, you know, having a kind of a personality that resonates, you know, and a strategy that resonates. So it's really fun to, you know, think about that and map that out, especially for someone like me who, you know, a lot of the kind of political experts who are friends said, you know, there's a path for you to win. It's a really tough path and long path. And I always say, well, yeah, that's a good thing that, you know, I climb these mountains that don't have paths because I like making my own path. So it's sometimes a liability, but it's also extremely fun for me to find my way through, you know, whatever I see on the landscape. That's cool to be able to craft your own path. And I really appreciate your focus on the vision, because I think in one of our recent episodes that Misasha and I did on this civics, I don't know if it was 103, but the local level, and we talked about the incredible budget and the influence that the strong mayor form of government has for some of these big cities. To dive into something that you've touched on a couple of times, I would like to think about what you called like that human element of that experience that you've had. The thing that a lot of cities are grappling with across the country is this idea of, you know, what sort of safety measures is the government obligated to provide for the citizens? How do we house people? So I was wondering if you could talk to us first like about what it was like growing up living in Denver Housing Authority. Like, What was your day-to-day like? How did it feel at that time and now looking back on it? Yeah, it's, you know, all that has fed so much into how I think about what our city needs today, like we were talking about. And, and I think, you know, so I appreciate that question and the chance to expand a little bit. We experienced, my mom and I experienced this housing insecurity it wasn't a long period, you know, we just sort of ran out of a housing you know, option and it was a scramble. And But, you know, I always grew up near low-income housing communities and, you know, had cousins and friends who were in low-income housing. And I think one of the things I reflect on most is that I'm a sixth generation Coloradan, yet even in the sixth generation, we have people who are experiencing housing insecurity. That to me suggests that There are a lot of things that haven't been quite designed right because there are resources and there are efforts to help people consistently. And if we still have these like persistent negative outcomes, you know, my grandparents didn't live in public housing, but so it's not like generational poverty, but the idea that you could still have that kind of dislocation in someone's life was really 
a big deal. And I saw sort of a similar path in my education, like when I was a kid. So I moved schools and, you know, I was diagnosed with learning differences and thankfully having a mom, my first stroke of luck was getting my, the mom I got because she really advocated for me and then found the right place for me, which was a kind of a golden ticket, which was a private school across town in Denver. And I made this daily trip from, you know, West Denver, the lowest income neighborhood in Denver to, you know, I went to school with billionaires, kids, you know, and, you know, that has certainly fed into a lot of who I am today, you know, being as comfortable in, you know, a urban, you know, park in the center of the city, as I am in a boardroom in Manhattan, as I am in the Ragged's Wilderness area in the back country, you know, all alone. So, you know, just being able to sort of feel really comfortable and at home in all these places. How else has that like experience in your childhood shape, you know, for example, your approach to being commissioner of the Denver Housing Authority, you know, for a long time? I think it's really bridging the divide between the very important observations that people who are getting served and what people need versus what all the, you know, budgeters and planners and policy people are thinking. You know, you can have these groups sitting in the same room for weeks and not actually be talking about the same topic, you know, even though they're talking the whole time. I remember, you know, we were in one of our planning meetings at the Denver Housing Authority, we were talking about, you know, oh, let's have our program designed so that everybody gets out of our housing as soon as possible. You know, we get them, give them a leg up and then people move on. And then we make a unit available. We don't have to build another unit. There's a vacant unit to be, uh, to help someone else. And I remember listening to one of my fellow commissioners and when basically she said, when you come in to Denver housing authority, a lot of times you have a lot of trauma you've been through and it takes quite a while to get to heal. And we don't always have many resources for that. And, or we don't have any, frankly. So yeah, it is a generous thing to get a unit, but it's also, it's not everything for some families. It is for me and my mom, it turned out to be okay. But for my fellow commissioner, resident commissioner by requirement. So then going back to the planner and kind of uh, real estate side and saying, hey, well, how do we rethink this a little bit and use that input as we design our financial and operating model? What I'm hearing you say is that I think the science of behavior sort of backs this up is that we tend to be in our own silos, right? Like we're around people who are like us. And it's sometimes we make assumptions about what other groups of people might need based on our own experiences, but that's not necessarily the best solution. It's often better to ask the folks who are impacted, you know, what do you need? What do we all say to those who are uncomfortable with the number of unhoused folks in the city who are perhaps living in tents on the sidewalks or in other towns or in other parts of the city, right? Because I think there are people who are like, well, just they shouldn't be there, but they look at the problem without the solution. How do we help shift their eyes or their values to understand a different aspect to this? Yeah, huge observation. You know, I don't know that we change people's values. Obviously, I think a lot of values guide us to where we're going to plug into the challenge. You know, so you've got people who are fixated on the addiction. You have people who are fixated on, you know, some other aspect of like, not not necessarily the, of the problem overall, but the sequence of events that happen in someone's life that, you know, where everything can fall apart. You know, I've always thought, wow, I have you know, personally experienced stress where I could sort of see myself not being far from, you know, that 
experience myself. And I feel very fortunate and grateful for the life I have. But where I go to more than anything is connecting more to ourselves, and then we'll have more of a connection to others. And that takes a lot of self-criticism. It takes a lot of self-evaluation. And that is humbling. And it, I think, helps us see what the reality of the challenges that others are facing, you know, walking a mile in someone's shoes. What I hear you say is really that focus on empathy, right? And the ability to connect with others. And also that sort of self-interrogation piece that we, Sarah and I, spend a lot of time talking about in the podcast as well. But that is so crucial in order to understand who we are before we can go out into the world and really see how we can change things. And so I want to ask you a question about sort of individual impact. We've realized that there are a lot of areas that are lacking out there when it comes to civic engagement and people focus on, you know, the presidential election every four years and people forget that there are a whole host of things that make communities run very locally, right, which impact some of us in much more direct ways. And so I'm curious if you could encourage, you know, our listeners who are listening to this right now to do just one thing to make a difference in our greater community, regardless of where they live, because, you know, in Denver or in this greater whatever country our listeners are in, what would that be for you? What areas do you think folks can really speak up or, or get more involved in? Yeah, I think, can we agree that there's one assumption involved that precedes the question, which is that the person voted? Can we? Yes. Is that fair? Okay. All right. Then, because I think that actually ties to the biggest challenges that I observe in the functioning of our civic systems. I think our civic systems relied on that minimum obligation of voting together with another minimum obligation of following up on your vote. And that it means watching what happens in the whatever body or office that you elected to and what the delivery is, what the outcomes are, you know, that were promised versus, you know, what actually happens and, you know, go to a forum like a candidate, you know, forum once in a while and really see, is it all lining up? Does it make sense? I mean, people will sniff out you know, problems really, really quickly. In particular, you know, unauthenticity or inauthenticity, because that's like so much of our bearing is like, we want to be able to trust whoever we elect. We're never going to get the kind of substance that we're looking for in elections, because actually campaigns, modern campaigns work really hard to avoid any substance and as a key strategy to winning. But so you're not going to, you'll get some substance, but Really, it comes down to accountability and that question of authenticity. And the more we set that, keep raising that bar by following up with our vote and plugging in afterwards, I think that's when we start to see actually some real moving of the needle on the kinds of candidates and people who run for office and and get elected and, and really help move our society forward. I have such a gut reaction to that. I really appreciate that because how many times have we all voted And aside from like the big, oh, I know that I voted for this person, they either won or didn't, but then all of the policies, you know, should stores be allowed to sell wine outside of the liquor stores in Colorado? Like all of these things, do we all follow up? It almost ties for me, social media activism, the cyber activism of like, oh, I posted a black square, quick, done. We vote and then we're like, all right, I'm out. As opposed to really having the ability to stay focused and follow through on the change that we actually wish to see. And that goes back to then 
I think it all comes back to the quality of humans that we are and the cultivation of the skills and the depth of character that we want to have and see in ourselves and our families. Because if we just allow ourselves to live in that superficial quick time frame, we're not going to do that. Like when we're thinking about people who can choose to like develop their sense of self, reflect, do the painful work of digging out that trauma or examining what values we hold versus people who are privileged by the systems, by the generations that have come before them, who can sort of ride and coast without ever having to question those things about themselves. Gosh, it makes me think like we can't change certain people. So what are the levers in the system that we need to change to give more people that ability to live a more fulfilled life and have those values that we need to positively ratchet up the system? A lot of it goes to the kinds of communities we build and how our kids are able to either explore or not explore because we don't feel safe with them exploring or, you know, make relationships with a lot of different kinds of kids in schools that, you know, create that kind of diversity of experience. That's how I always talked about it for me was diversity of experience. So like there's the diversity of the group that you put someone in and then there's the diversity of the experience for each person in that group and diversity of experiences, especially when you're a kid, you know, is just an opportunity to start exploring those things. And our cities have to be places that are conducive to that. I think to really end up building the kind of character and relationships and, and self, you know, the self, the inner capacity, it strikes me. I mean, I, when I think a lot about my city building ideas, you know, they're, they fundamentally go back to, you know, like in Japan, there's a show where they send kids, little tiny kids on errands throughout like these big cities, Tokyo and whatever, Kyoto. And it's a point of pride for the Japanese culture. And the show kind of captures this. That their cities are, in fact, that safe. The little kids can walk down the street by themselves at like the age of two or three. And when you design a city for the most vulnerable in society, turns out you build a pretty dang good city. What do you think that we haven't asked, but is important for the average citizen to understand about civics and civic engagement? Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, what's the most underappreciated or inobvious thing that you think is important to this whole, you know, process and structure working out? And for me, that's you know, the media having a rich and diverse and alternative and mainstream media, and that we consume little bits of all of it. And it's important to also have like your, I have a really specific recommendation is like, choose your, you know, whatever your interests are in the world, you know, choose your, find, you know, shop around a little bit, find your main th source that you're going to read every day, two sources you're going to read every day. You don't have to read them cover to cover, or, you know, just like pick up a few pieces out of. But then also keep driving yourself to scan for more, you know, check the accountability and performance of your sources because bias in media is just a reality. And the sooner we accept that and just say, well, we just have to empower ourselves and train ourselves to figure out when the, you know, when the system is being abused, then we, we're not so, you know, we're just much more powerful. And so media and media health and media consumption is like all that is huge for me. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And especially some of the headlines we're seeing coming out about media integrity of late. I think that's an important thing to check your sources too. And I know what you phrase this in a more 
positive uplifting way, like we can become stronger. But what do you think happens? Because we hear a lot, oh, people are busy. We don't have time to engage. What might happen if people choose not to engage in this, to ignore the media, to not really be paying attention to elections and policies? Uh, we'll be, you know, working 24-7 robots. I mean, if we don't pay attention to the society we build, someone else who has a lot of interests in sort of extracting our production or whatever it is, will definitely design the society they want to see. And so it's, you know, part of actually, you know, holding the line on having some time. So, you know, be, you know, I think it's important. And, you know, I think there's, this is coming up more and more as like, how does it help you be even a better employee? Or, you know, how does it help you be a better parent? when you're sharing time, looking at world events together. And, you know, it doesn't have to happen dedicated on its own. It can be a tool for, you know, other advancement. And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, but it's essential to building the, the world we want. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so too. Is there anything else we didn't ask you that you think you want to talk about a little bit more? I mean, so as you've delved into civics, I mean, just what sense do you get from kind of generational attitudes about civics and you know you talked that you alluded to you know we took it when we were kids or whatever or may have i mean especially when you look at gen z and you know greta thunberg and you know these kids you know fighting gun violence in their schools and actually having an impact i mean what as you guys have been embarking on this project you know what do you see on the horizon hope despair a little bit of both I'd go with a little bit of both. I think there is an increasingly larger divide as to where you live, right? And to the level of exposure that you get and the fight over funding, right, for civics education, because civics doesn't get funded in the ways that, you know, STEM does, for example. I think that I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday where she was saying that she learned a lot of things that she had never learned. And she's in the same age that Sarah and I are sort of in our mid 40s through TikTok, which is, you know, Gen Z's sort of way to be authentic and um, just put out these blasts of information. She's like, I have learned so much that I was never taught in school. So that sort of, even though I have specific feelings about social media, I think that there is that interest in authenticity and learning. But at the same time, we see extreme suppression on the other end and people's unwillingness to engage in conversation around change or conversation around discomfort. So I feel both, I think. You know, I feel like the more that we can have conversations like these, right, which highlight the practicality of how to think about this, right? And the more that we can think about, to your point about media sources, right? how we can think critically about the future, how we can encourage our children to think critically and not give that up when they become adults. And just, you know, Sarah knows that my favorite question is why, right? Why is something like this? Why do I feel this way about this? And my least favorite answer is because it's always been this way. Because I think that when you get that answer, that's when you need to ask, you know, about 50 more questions of that one thing. And I hope that we can continue to teach this, right? And that we can continue, if not for our generation, then those generations that are coming up. But I do think there is this divide. And unless we do something about the divide, the divide just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think there are it, certainly now living in Denver, there's certainly groups of people that I think can get away with having no idea how other people live. 
and they are so caught up in their own lives because everybody is busy still trying to do their own best and provide for their own selves and family that they sort of go, well, I don't have time. What's in it for me? Why should I care? Like, I'm working hard as it is. How can I take this on? And I think that's the perpetual fight that we see is how do we make this work relevant? How do we share with people that that you are impacted by these same systems that are hurting our most vulnerable? You just don't see it yet. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.